This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, Dog Whistle Brandon. You're in for a treat today as I'm joined by Navy veteran and serial entrepreneur, Randy Hetrick, founder of TRX, a leading global brand in physical training and the industry leader in functional fitness. I ran into Randy at the Military Veteran Startup Conference back in February and invited him on the podcast to which he kindly obliged. I've been a fan of his for a long time, consuming countless podcast interviews over the years, including his one on how I built this with Guy Raz. Randy knows what it takes to go from zero to one, taking TRX from a bootstrap startup to a high growth consumer brand with 100 employees and approximately $85 million in annual revenue as of 2020. Today, Randy is working on his new startup called Outfit Training, an innovative mobile outdoor fitness service bringing convenient, affordable, and expertly led TRX group and private training to neighborhoods near you. Outfit's franchise fleet of world-class gyms on wheels are owned and operated by local TRX certified trainers and are networked via a cutting-edge technology platform and member app. Before diving into Outfit, Randy and I discussed the origins of TRX, including how he identified the market opportunity for their legendary suspension trainers, his approach to product design, and how TRX went to market and eventually scaled up. We then discussed Outfit and how he's applying the lessons learned from building a multi-million dollar consumer brand to his franchise on wheels. Randy is the real deal, so make sure you're locked and loaded for the following show. Gunny, you know what to do. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, founder of Ironbound Media and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper and get ready to build a dog whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load. Randy, welcome to Dog Whistle Branding. Fired up. I'm motivated to have you here. Oh, man, it's uh, it's so amazing when I think about this niche around veteran entrepreneurs, just how I'm able to, you know, go to an event like the Military Veteran Startup Conference, run into you. And I've been listening to you for a while on various different podcasts, how I built this, et cetera. And I reached out to you, invite you on my show. And here we are, man. So I think my guests are going to get tons of value from uh, having your insights today. Well, let's hope you're right. It's I'm happy to be here. And uh it was fun meeting you at uh, at the event at the Marine, Marines Memorial, and and I'm I'm excited to uh, to be able to support what you're doing as well. So one of the things I want to do is right. You've probably done God knows how many interviews at this point, and it's the same old kind of stories. And I'm changing up my little format here on Dog Whistle Brandon, and I want to have more discussion based kind of content, right? Okay. Because. I just feel like uh, just having a discussion just opens up so much opportunity to take some nuggets and everything. And so I figure for us, I want to start with the question somebody brought up to you at the, the Military Vet Startup Conference. So, you know, we're all fired up, all these entrepreneurs in the room, and then there's seasoned entrepreneurs like yourself, been in the trenches 18 years. Or savaged. savaged. One of the two, right? It could be, it could be either. It probably means both. If you're seasoned. Yeah. 
you've certainly been savaged by it as well. You can't see Randy on camera, but he's got some bruises, black <laughs> eyes, a busted lip. So he's he's been through it. But 18 right. years hooking and jabbing with TRX. You've launched this new company outfit. And I bring this up because the panel, somebody asked a question. They said, Randy, how do you build brand awareness? How do you get your name out there? And you said it. Really? We should be focused on building trust. And I assume what are perfect customers and then not only building and earning that trust, but making sure we're doing everything in our in our power to maintain it. Can you expand upon what you meant by trust uh, for the audience? Yeah, well, I'm, if I remember right, we were talking about branding, right? We were talking about sort of how to how to get your name out. And then that that sort of expanded into like, how do I get my brand to be uh, recognized, you know, and and what I I think what I had said, because it's what I believe is that really brands are lots of things, but they all add up to one word, which is trust. And it's it's about creating a a trusted service product for the customer. Right. It's a it's a, a, a service or a product that you articulate, you make a brand promise to a potential customer, they choose to give it a go. And then what was their experience, right? Was their experience great? And not just, you know, at the point of purchase or, or when they, you know, swipe their credit card to have, have you come do whatever you do, but during the experience, was it good after the experience, you know, did, if they, if it's a product like TRX, you know, did they have something they needed more information on and could they get it? So the idea is like, you know, creating this really great experience and then repeating it over and over and over, because that's what builds the trust so that, you know, if you're a product company, hard thing about TRX is we make gear that lasts for freaking ever. So that's a tough growth business, right? Like you got to keep going out and finding new customers and new customers are very expensive to find. So, you know, yeah, I need new customers, but what I really want is for my existing customers, when I bring a new product to market, I want them to leap on it, right? Like a freaking dog on a bone. And, and that way they, they save me all the, all the cost of, of chasing down a new customer. And the reason they're willing to do it is because they trust me. They trust TRX, right? They know that, Hey, first of all, we make great gear. We support it with programming. If you don't like it, you can return it. TRX been around almost 20 years. It's not like we're going to, you know, be gone when you come back for, for service from us. So all of that adds up into, you know, the trust that, that over time builds a really, really strong brand. I think your response took people off guard, right? Because I think so many of them are thinking, especially early first time founders, right? We're like, oh, I need to build brand awareness. I need to create a social media account. I need to, you know, create a newsletter. I need to do all these different things. And you're saying, how about you focus on building a good product and do it repeatedly? And like the only way you can do that is getting the product in the hands of people, getting real customers that you're solving a specific pain point for and learning from them instead of just like, we all know that starting a business is really like writing fiction. You don't know what you don't know. You might develop a perfect customer or product thesis, but you're really faking it. And then once yeah. you get that market-based feedback, it's like, okay, now we really know and now we got to scale this thing up. Yeah, I mean, all the things that you mentioned, those are tactics, right? They're tactics. Uh, you know, a social media page, a website, uh, packaging, that's all tactics. What 
what really and and you know it's important stuff, but it comes. I think it's secondary to the primary um, target, which is to create a great product or a great service that solves somebody's problems. And if and if you do that in in some way, shape, or form, you solve a problem, you make their life better, easier, faster. You know, whatever whatever your sort of uh, point of differentiation is and your unique benefits that you're offering, make sure those are great and make sure they solve a problem. Because if they do, then the market will pull you into it, right? You don't have to push like Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill. You It'll pull you in. And, uh, and then once you do that over and over and over, now, not only will individuals trust you, but they'll, they'll trust you to the point where they want to go tell their friends. Right. And, and that's where you really start to, to recognize and realize the value of a brand because everybody talks about brands. But like, yeah, what's it worth? It doesn't show up on a balance sheet. Right. I mean, theoretically, it doesn't goodwill. But but brands never get valued properly on a, on a balance sheet where brands get valued properly is in the market that they become their own form of marketing just by existing because you got it right early on and you built that trust. Trust led to repeat patronage and word of mouth referrals, right? That's where you start to, to feel the value. So I want to take it back to the foundation of TRX, right? So I remember from the How I Built This podcast, you were at, I, I joked with him before we went live, y'all. I was like, man, you got the hell out of Stanford, right? He got his MBA and he was gone. But from all the interviews I heard while you were at Stanford, you were building this product, right? You knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur, et cetera. And one of the things I've been stressing to my audience, not only on this podcast, but another podcast I host for Bunker Labs, is the importance of maintaining this market first mindset. So, you know, a lot of times as entrepreneurs, like we think that if I have the best team, I'm a really great entrepreneur and I got funding, that that means success. But one thing that I'm sure you're aware of, businesses fail for primarily two reasons. Number one, no market need. And number two, they run out of cash. And one of the things that I know we have control over is being intentional about the market opportunities that we're going after. And so from you, I'm curious to learn, where did you see the opportunity for TRX, the initial product, right? Just the, the resistance bands. And how did you know you could flip that into a business? Well, I mean, you know, I, I've broke a couple of my own rules with TRX in, in that, you know, I really, I tell, I mean, I teach you know, entrepreneurship at both my alma maters at USC at the Marshall School and then at Stanford Business School. And I'm always hounding people when they're, you know, I'll ask question, how many entrepreneurs I got in the class right now? You know, and then and then I'll I'll start asking them like what what problem do you want to solve? Because if you don't want to solve a problem, you just want to go into a business because you can, like buckle up. It, it is not going to be an easy ride, right? And and so a little bit of that got violated with TRX because, you know, one reason I, I was not, I didn't know what I didn't know back then, right? I just got out of the SEAL teams and, you know, I wasn't a business dude yet, much less a, you know, a seasoned entrepreneur. Um, and so it wasn't crystal clear what problem I was solving. That that problem, thank God, did exist, right? It did exist. But I... I, I knew what it was at my unit level. I didn't know that it was going to be generalizable to the broad population, right? And and so the problem that I was solving was, you know, and I created the first suspension trainer out of a jiu-jitsu belt and about six feet of, of you know, of harness webbing 
that we all, you know, in military units, you always have in your in your kit box at, because webbing is useful, right? I mean, that's one of those dirty little secrets that only vets know is that with some some webbing, some 550 cord, and some duct tape, you can conquer the freaking world. And uh, and so I kind of hashed together this harness because we kept deploying into regions where we couldn't go out. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't a peaceful deployment, and and we couldn't just go out and you know go to a local gym. A lot of the places we were going had no gyms. And we wouldn't deploy with training gear. You were, you know, your pallet weight was always, you were, there was always off gear that you were having to leave off because of the pallet weight. So you certainly weren't going to load up, you know, dumbbells and Olympic gear. And which meant that when you, when you deployed, all right, it's fine if you deployed for a couple of days, but if you deployed for a couple of weeks, much less a couple of months, and you didn't have access to training gear, well, now how the hell are you going to be a Navy SEAL if you can't train anything other than push-ups? And so I had sort of, you know, um, hacked together this solution to a problem, which was I got to train the climbing muscles. And we're in a little warehouse with no good access to anything to do pull-ups on. And so that was kind of the, the initial problem, right, that I was solving. But I don't know how many people have that problem, right? I just know that my guys in the squadron had that problem, and they became super keen users and wanted me to make make these for them. And that was like my first indication that, all right, something good here is going on, right? Because I got a bunch of, I got a bunch of hairy chested frogmen that normally all they want to do is heckle. And so the fact that these guys are saying to me like, Hey boss, make me one of your gizmos. And they're willing to pay a case of beer to the rigger out in the Paraloft to go have him make them for them. That told me like, all right, I'm onto something. Cause I got a bunch of very high, you know, high end, physical or consumers of physical training here. They know their shit when it comes to, you know, to, to athletic training. Um, that was kind of proof point one. And then when I was at Stanford, you probably heard me tell this story before, but I, I had a buddy who had been a football player, their undergrad who knew all the coaches and got, you know, himself and me permission to go out and train in the athlete training center rather than the, the, you know, the campus gym. And when we were out there, all the coaches, every single one of them over a period of months came up to me and asked me like, what the hell is this? And, and as I would tell them, then they'd immediately go, oh my gosh, this would be great for my, my linemen. They need this. You know, this would be great for my female sprinters. This would be great for my gymnast. And pretty soon you had like pretty much a cross section of humanity that these coaches were telling me your strap does something that this world-class training room at Stanford University does not have. And that was kind of where I went, all right, now I got two proof points, right? I got I got my SEALs and I got these coaches that know an awful lot about training and they're all begging me to make these for them. I wonder, you know, I wonder if if there's something here. And that that was kind of the, you know, enough of a, I cleared enough of a hurdle to, to answer the question that, yeah, someone's going to buy these. How many people will buy these? I don't know. Right. But I think there's enough here to build some kind of business and I'm going to give it a go. I know a lot of times we start talking about business. People say like, oh, that it was so obvious, right? They do the case studies and it looks like everything matched <laughs> up perfectly. But I know that that's not necessarily the case. However, right. There's this saying of like founder product fit. And when I think of you, 
right? Going on deployments, being out there in the sticks. You're observant, right? Like I know when I was on deployment in Afghanistan, Marines and sailors find a way to work out. Like you said, we'll have some 550 cord or whatever. So you're you're not, you might not necessarily have it uh, completely dialed in, but you are observing around you that, hey, these guys and gals are trying to work out. They're using belts. They're using whatever they can get their hands on. I feel like that there's something there. And I'm not just coming from this on the outside looking in, right? Like I'm part of that tribe. Like what do we say? Eat your own dog food, right? So you're creating a product that you can actually use yourself. And then once you get a little training at Stanford, start getting a little frameworks, you're like, okay, I can actually flip this into a product. But I think that's super important because so often we're trying to solve problems that we have, we just think it's a good business opportunity. We don't bring any agency, right? We haven't looked around. We don't know people. And when you went to market from the very beginning, like you said, you had the football team you could go to because you were working out in the gym. You had your sale buddies that you could send prototypes and stuff to. And I think that that is super important in the early days where we're trying to validate that perfect customer thesis. Yeah. People talk a lot about product market fit, you know, and product market fit is not monolithic. It's at least you know, two different tacks. One is like, hey, do you have a solution to a real problem, right? That is generalizable because the bit more generalizable that problem is, obviously, the bigger the market. That's only half the story. The other half is the one that you touch on, which is which is the entrepreneurial fit, right? The the fit with the venture and the entrepreneur. And and I think it's really, really important, you know, like there there have been pop pop business books written about this kind of subject, you know, the one that pops to mind for me is, is uh, blink, which Malcolm Gladwell wrote. And it, and it, you know, the thesis is that, you know, a lot of times you can, you can become unnecessarily paralyzed by too much analysis and you can just go with your gut. But the corollary to that is, is that the gut isn't a smart go with your gut. Isn't just, well, that's how I feel. So I'm going to do it. It's, it's the kind of gut instinct that another word for that would be evolution, right? Like it takes decades in, a, in an area to build that kind of institutional knowledge within yourself so that, yeah, when you're, you know, when you're making a gut instinct, it's not actually a split second judgment. It's, it's, it's the summation of a couple of decades of experience in that domain that lets somebody make a good blink judgment, right? And so that's why it really argues that if you can go into a business in an area that you either have a bunch of experience in from a prior life experience, you're super passionate about as a, as a you know, avocation, right? And, uh, or you maybe grew up in a family that, you know, whatever, had a, had, a, had a dad or a mom that worked, you know, 30 years in a particular domain and you couldn't help but understand it over time. Well, that's you're going to have much higher probability of success if you choose your your startup in something you know about than if you're just like, I mean, look, if I wanted to go out tomorrow and start a tech company, the hell do I know about tech? Right? Like, I I can barely get my get my damn audio to work for this podcast, right? So like, I don't want to be in I don't want to be in that kind of an environment. I want to go into something that I know one way or another. So for me. Fitness, I knew I'd been an athlete my entire life, right? And then, all right, well, I know something about training on the go. I know something about 
you know, the psychology of people who like to work out. Like I knew a lot, even though I didn't know anything yet, you know, technically in my business. Well, that brings me to my next point, right? So, you know, out in Silicon Valley, they love the product marketers and the product managers. And, you know, typically they're building these technology products and stuff, et cetera. Then here you are in there hooking some straps and stuff together. And then you flip that into a, a, a multi-million dollar company. So I'm curious to know, like, what have you learned really matters about product marketing? Because there's a lot of fluff up there. You know, there's the pop culture stuff. But like at the end of the day, like, I feel like there's like a brilliant in the basics when it comes to positioning a product in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't call myself really a marketer. I mean, I've certainly picked up some, you know, some marketing uh, savvy along, along the way, but frankly, I think that's something that TRX really was never very good at. You, You know, honestly, Mike, we, we didn't focus too much on marketing. First of all, we never had any money, right? Cause I took my, my entire, the, you know, my, my life savings when I got out of the teams, I had about 50 grand in cash and 150K in MBA debt. Um, I was able to pull about 30 grand out of that 150 that I had, that I had taken in student loans and drop it into my startup fund. So, so maybe I had 80,000 bucks to start this business. That was nothing. And it certainly couldn't pay for marketing. So what, what, what I think that forced me to do, and I'm getting to your question is that like it really forced me to make sure that first of all I had a great product because if you have a great product or a great service like the amount of marketing that you have to do is less now it's not zero because nobody will know about it unless you somehow get it in front of them but it's a lot less and and then it also forced me to get crafty about how I was going to to get out of obscurity right because I believe that the number one enemy of any startup is obscurity. If you stay in obscurity for you, everybody starts in obscurity, but if you stay in obscurity for too long, it's like staying in the middle of a kill zone, right? You're going to get killed. So you got to get out of it. And, and as fast as possible, obscurity is like that. It's like the kill zone for startups. You got to get the hell out of the kill zone by getting out of obscurity. And the way that, that we did that is that we started by, by picking a first order customer that you know, I have this whole this whole metaphor that I like to use, which is a bullseye about how to how to think about your customers, and you know the the epicenter right of the bullseye, and it's a hard thing to do, but you have to pick your first order customer because saying something like I like I often say now, shit, TRX serves everybody from you know I used to say Jerry Lew- or you know uh, Jerry Rice to Jerry Lewis. Right. And everywhere in between. Now, nobody even knows who the hell Jerry Lewis was because the guys, you know, been gone for a long time. But but the bottom line is like we have a very, very broad customer set from old people, men and women to, you know, teenagers everywhere in between cut right down the middle between females and males. Well, that's a that's a high quality problem, but it's a hell of a marketing challenge. So. What, what you have to do is, is say, yeah, I understand that at some point I can sell to all those people. But when I'm coming right out of the gate, who is the one person that I am going to sell to? Right. Like get that person in your mind's eye. Like who does this person look look like? Like what is it? You know, and what we chose was trainers. Now, that gave us, you know, men and women. Old and young, but trainers. 
like trainers was who we were selling to. And what turned out to be genius about that is that in trainer, you get a couple things, right? Number one, you get a credit card and that means cash on the barrel head right freaking now, right? Which to your point, one of the two things that kills, kills every startup, run out of cash. So time to cash matters. So I picked, you know, and I think everybody should pick when they pick their first customer, time to cash had better be in your mind. Because if, if you pick a customer that has some long damn payment term, that's why I passed on retail early on. That's why I passed initially on the government because these long payment cycles, right? I didn't have time for. I'd have somebody who could swipe their card and put money in my bank account so I could pay my electricity and my part-time help, you know? And, and so that was one of the reasons. The second was that trainers, what do they do for a living? They are the gatekeepers to a host of others who pay them for their expertise in fitness. So if I could take a trainer and sell to him, not only was I getting the cash, he was going to become my ambassador to, you know, maybe a couple hundred uh, clients each year. Right. And guess what they have too? They have credit cards. And if they have the endorsement of their, of their, their uh, trainer and they have a credit card, well, then they can become my, my customer right away as well, where otherwise, how the hell am I going to go get people in their home when I have two nickels that I'm rubbing together furiously to try to create heat? And I don't know where they are. I don't know who they are. You know, so, so that's kind of how I thought about it, Mike, is that like first get the product right, which we did, stand behind it, take all the risk out of the, out of the equation for your customer, and then choose your first customer very wisely, ideally, choose customers who can become your ambassadors to, to others. Yeah. I call it a perfect customer. That's why I kept hearing me say the perfect customer thesis. It's like, you know, product market fit, all that stuff is sound great. Who is the one person you can reach out and touch that, you know, your product has value for and that you can create that like network of scale. And you can even say that, that, uh, that trainer, what I like about that, that also serves as a Trojan horse to more people because you're right. That trainer serves as social proof He's interacting with people every day. They're seeing this product. And they're like, how do I get one of those? So now you're building trust, not only by having a great product, but, you know, trainers in the eyes of people working out, they have their trust and confidence. So it's a, you know, a win-win. Now, one thing I haven't brought up on this show yet, which I'm curious to hear your feedback on is pricing products in the marketplace. How did you think about how much you offer for uh, these initial resistance bands? I screwed it up. That's how I did it. (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the first thing we did is what everybody does. And, you know, and I had a damn MBA from Stanford. And I still did the dumbest damn thing you could ever imagine. I went and I went, all right, I need to figure out what my gross profit is. Well, what's my cost of goods minus my sale price? And I backed into it, right? I basically said, well, I need to make, you know, I, I, I got to make at least 50%, you know, returns. So that means if it costs me, you know, 30, well, I, I, got, I can sell it for 60. Well, you know, maybe a little more, 69, because I have some transaction costs in there. Well, what did I forget? I forgot, yeah, that's great. If all I ever do is sell my product direct to the customer on my website. But guess what? That's a recipe for staying tiny or going out of business. So what do I need? Well, I need partners. Well, what do they need? They need some damn margin. That's what they need because they don't want to be my partners for free. So what happened, I mean, honestly, the first, the first, uh, 
the first straps that we sold, we put on the market for 69 bucks. I'll never forget it. Right. And, and we thought, well, you know, I think at the time, I don't know, they were probably costing us half of that. We figured, well, well, we'll, you know, we'll be able to make, make a, a keystone markup. And then, you know, that's great. We got out of the gate, we started selling, but there were a couple of problems with that. One, I didn't have enough margin to get any other partner, no reseller. I didn't even have margin to pay a salesperson commission, right? So one, you have to think through all of your channel costs, right? And you have to factor those into your price. Don't come out and just think, well, well, I'm selling direct. Think that a resale partner needs to make between 20 and 50 points. You want to go to sell, you know, I want to sell straps at Dick Sporting Goods, minimum, they got to make a keystone markup, right? Which means 100% of their cost has to be able to be added. And that's what they're going to sell to their customer at, right? So as you're pricing, you got to consider all those channel costs. And then the one other thing that I, that fortunately uh, I hadn't considered, but it worked out in my favor is signaling, right? And signaling is this term that gets used a lot in business schools. Like, you know, what, what are your actions tell somebody else without you telling them, right? So pricing carries a signal. Well, when I priced this thing at 69 bucks, guess what? You know, everybody out there looked at it and went 69 bucks. Like it's gotta be kind of a gimmick, right? Because nothing that's good costs 69 bucks, right? Like, like in the fitness space, like, you know, machines are thousands of dollars. Bikes are, you know, high hundreds or thousands, uh, weight sets, right? High hundreds, like, no, you're not getting anything that's worth something for 69 bucks, right? Now that's not true, but that's the perception. Cause there's a lot of things that in, in the industry that, you know, a lot of training tools that, that cost less than that, that are good. But in general, people expect, you know, if something's really good, they expect to pay more for it. So what happened with us is we realized first, oh no, we, we've underpriced these things. Like we, you know, we don't have enough margin to to be able to sell at retail or have salespeople or have, you know, do affiliate marketing deals. So we knew we were going to have to raise our prices. And I had a really smart dude, ex-Marine, by the way, uh, who was uh, a guy named Tom Davin, who was on my uh, one of my early investors and on my board. And he basically said, look, the thing about pricing is remember this. If you triple your price, which may sound outlandish, right? couple things happen. Number one, you send a signal that, hey, this thing is really good or it couldn't possibly be priced this high. Number two, you got to sell one third the number of units that, that you would have to sell today to be in the exact same damn place. So ask yourself this question, Randy. Do you believe that by tripling your price, you are going to lose two thirds of your customers? You know, and I thought about it and I came back and said, no. I don't think maybe I'll lose a third. Well, then guess what? You're a third ahead of where you are today, right? And there's a lot of goodness because you're getting a customer that's that's you know got more discretionary income, which means they'll probably buy more stuff from you if you if they trust you. Uh, they've they've got they're going to take if they don't have more money and they're willing to do to pay that price. They're serious, so they're going to be committed to this product. It's not like something that they buy, use once, and throw in their closet. Right. So you're getting you're upgrading your customer by upgrading your pricing. Right. And and so for those reasons, that's what we did. We tripled our price 
And I remember, man, that was like the scariest damn thing, Mike, that I ever did. I remember my, my, my director of marketing was having a meltdown, you know, telling me that we're going to go out of business. No one's going to. We did it on a Friday. I'll never forget. Went home and I stared because back then I looked at every order, every single order that was coming in. Right. And, I, and the damnedest thing happened. Not only did we not lose customers, our volume doubled over the course of the next month because this signaling, I mean, you know, first of all, your new customers, they have no idea what your, what your product was priced at before they found you. So it's not like they're going, well, wait a minute. I mean, maybe there were five people that said, hey, last week this was priced at 70 bucks and now it's 180, right? What the hell happened? For the most part, that is not, nobody knew that it had been priced lower before, right? It was just a bunch of people, show, you know, slowly getting word about this cool strap and when they came in, they looked at it and went, wow, well, if it's that expensive, it must be really good. I think I need one of these. And so it was the most bizarre thing. You know, instead of the, the, the prognostications of doom, our business not only became massively more profitable, but the sales volume accelerated almost doubled. What did you end up uh, increasing your price to? You said sixty nine ninety nine at first. Well, I th- no, I think we went, we went from $69.95 to, I think, the first time we jumped up we went to like 159 or, or or maybe it was 129 and then and then we we quickly raised it again because what we found was that our channel suddenly we had a whole bunch of distributors that wanted to carry us because we had enough margin to pay them right and so it wasn't like we, we weren't gouging the customer we were pricing our products so that we could actually have distributors helping us right because if you don't pay them they're not carrying your product so we ended up settling out around, you know, I think we've got, you know, we've got a bunch of different models now. We, we start at 99 and go up to about 250, depending on, you know, the, the, the commercial stuff that has to last, you know, when hundreds of people a day using it, that's the stuff that's up at 250, the super light duty stuff that we, that we have, you know, on Amazon for, really price con- conscious consumers that's 99 and then most of the most of the other models kind of kind of tend between like 150 and 170 something like that so I you're, you're buying one sorry I mean you're up you're buying one and it's gonna last your whole damn life right so right. So, so basically you're paying you're paying about the price that you would pay for a, a good pair of running shoes but running shoes last about six months and you got to get new ones you know and and a suspension trainer it'll last, you know, you and I'll be dead and our suspension trainers will still be hanging in the other room. That's what I was going to ask you next. Cause I've been in Afghanistan and those things are carried around. They've been in the mud and they still survive. And I do brand strategy for a lot of clients. And one, like my girlfriend, for example, she has a, oh, she makes handmade wellness products. Her company's called Sincerely by Day. But her problem is her products last too long. It takes people like forever to get through her bombs and stuff. And so how did you overcome that issue of like, okay, we're going to make this really great product. We're going to charge a premium price point for it. And now we either need like the entire world to buy this sucker or we get repeat purchases. You know, how did you overcome that to, to maintain growth? Well, for starters, I mean, you, you don't overcome that. You, you contend with it, right? Like it's because the reality is that's why durable products are a crappy business model. Like that's something I didn't appreciate my first go round and with my second go round, which we got to make sure we leave ourselves enough time to talk about because it's a perfect example. I learned the, the hard way, man, if you sell a product that lasts forever, 
it is a hard business to scale. Now, that doesn't mean it's not worth doing, but what it means is you are you are making some choices when you choose to go in a particular direction. And, and one of those choices is, you know, what you're not going to do. And in my case, like I made a mistake because I picked a durable goods business model and then I decided to take institutional capital. Well, those two things are mutually exclusive. And if you take a bunch of money from them and you don't understand that, what happens is their liability balloons over time. Well, if your business doesn't have the potential to achieve large scale, that's not the kind of capital you should be taking. You know, you should be you should be playing it much closer to the vest, taking smaller bites and doing it either with bank debt, right? That you can borrow a little, pay it down, borrow a little more, pay it down. Or with angel money, where people are much more patient and they're willing to invest in common stock, right? With no guaranteed returns. They're just one of your partners. They're putting in a little bit of money. They're swinging for the fences. They're hoping you're gonna you're gonna build this business into something, but it's different. And and so so to answer the question of like what do you do with a durable goods company, you have to kind of do two things. One, you've you've got to have a product development engine that allows you to build other products that can be sold to the same customers, right? Because they trust you because your first product was good. Uh, and not or and you have to figure out some elements of the business that are going to be recurring. So whether it's a content subscription, right, which is what we do at TRX, whether it's uh, education, right, like training professionals on how to use your product that in a recurring basis because they need to recertify, we, we do that at TRX as well. Um, uh, or whether you can actually add a whole different line of business that becomes a recurring revenue stream, right? So, you know, I mean, an example would be Peloton. If you look at Peloton, Peloton sells very expensive break-even bikes, right? They basically break even on their bikes because they're so damn expensive. All of the money that Peloton makes is through their subscriptions, which is why you've seen them getting hammered over the last, you know, 18 months because everybody realized there was a lot more hype than there was substance, right? Peloton has a decent business, but it got massively hyped, you know, and, and as soon as the subscription uh, growth stopped, the air just, you know, the balloon popped and they came crashing back down to earth. I mean, yesterday, I think I saw Peloton was at 20 bucks a share. Their 52-week high is something like 177, you know? So that's what happens when suddenly that recurring, the myth of a recurring revenue stream becomes, uh, you know, demythified, big troubles, because that's what that business was getting valued on is the recurring revenue, you know, and, and, and durable goods businesses get much lower value because investors know, like, this problem that we're talking about right now. So I appreciate you acknowledging that business is hard. You know, people see someone like you, they're like, oh, Randy, I joked with Randy before he jumped on. I was like, you were, I was like, I appreciate you being on because, you know, I'm taking you away from print money. And he just kind of shakes his head like I business will. is hard. You got to grind it out. You got to diversify revenue streams. And so as we switch gears to talk about outfit on the outside looking in, Randy, someone like me always assumes like you've made it. You've crossed the threshold. You're a successful entrepreneur. Isn't this when you kick your feet up? 
you know, chill out on a beach, drink your Mai Tai and just love life. But here you are jumping into a new venture outfit. And when I ran into you uh, in San Francisco, you were like, I'm excited to talk about outfit. I want to get the word out about what we're doing there. So talk to us about why a CEO who's been in the trenches and beat up for 18 years would do it all again. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I would ask you this question, Mike. Like, uh, you know, why does a woman have a second child? Right? Because if you remember what that first experience was like, clearly, no one would sign up for that a second time. Right? Well, all right. You get a little bit of distance, you know, between the first the first one and the second one. And you start remembering all of the all of the cool, quaint, you know, little babies are so cute and they smell good. And, you know, you forget that half the time they smell really bad and that that they're not cute at least half the time because they're screaming and barfing and colicky. And, you know, it's it's similar with with repeat entrepreneurship. Now, for me, I definitely have some kind of a sickness that I probably should get therapy for because I just like doing hard shit. Like it's, I don't know, my dad probably scarred me growing up, you know, and I, and so I, I'm constantly trying to prove something to myself. I don't know. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are that way, but you know, I, I, I love the, the idea of taking something that is between your ears and evaluating it, you know, doing some planning around it, thinking it through and then bringing it into reality. Like that is something that is very, very hard to do. And very few people can do it or would want to try to do it. You know, it, it, it puts you in a, you know, in a unique group of, of cats that are makers. And, I, and I'm, I'm a maker. I mean, I've been a tinkerer my whole life, you know, and, and I love nothing more when I was in the teams than, than tweaking and modifying my gear. You know, I spent hundreds of hours out in the paraloft, like, you know, optimizing and modifying all my gear. And, and that's kind of just a thing that I like to do. So when I saw, um, I mean, and it's, and, and in addition to that, you know, TRX, like TRX became something great and still is right. And it, and it became big and I mean, shit, we got it, you know, almost to a hundred million a year in revenue. Like it became bureaucratic. You know, when you, when you take in my experience, angel money, you get guys that want to help, but they're busy doing their own thing. You know, they're not they're not in your in your business every day demanding, you know, yet another report, yet another briefing. Um, and I mean, it really is a lot like being in the military with with bad headquarters elements, right? That end up you're trying to mission plan at the operator level. And instead, you know, your senior guys are all up spending all their time doing slideology. And, and barely have enough time to do a rock drill before you go do the op, right? That's the metaphor that translates to business if you take institutional capital, or I should say the wrong institutional capital. So for those reasons, for me, you know, and in addition, I'm a startup guy, right? I When things get bureaucratic and you start spending all your time talking about like employment law and like bureaucratic politics, I just, you know, that's not what turns me on, man. I don't want to be there. I want to treat everybody fairly and have everybody, you know, put their freaking ruck on and walk like adults, you know? And if you've got a problem with somebody, you freaking tell them whether you're male, female, doesn't matter. What matters is everybody doing their damn job and being team first. And so when things become more about the bureaucracy and the legalities and the 
bullshit, that's where I want to exit stage left and go build something new. And that, you know, and that, that kind of, that was all there when I saw the opportunity with Outfit. And, uh, and, you know, we can, we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Tell us about Outfit. I mean, first of all, I like Randy because Randy, like he eats his own dog food. He's watching, he's rocking his T-Rex hat. He's got his Outfit t-shirt on. (laughs) You know, you got to be the superhero of your own brand, right? People hiding behind social media. But like I look at you and I can tell you get out there and you talk to people and you fire people up about outfit. Yeah, man. I mean, I well, I love nothing more than than our trainers, our coaches and our members, like our coaches and our members. Like, I love it. Right. I love spending time with them. I love being in the classes. I love hearing from, you know, from our customers, like what they love, what they'd like more of what they don't like, you know, that's just part of what makes me tick. And, and so the opportunity with outfit that came along was, you know, for about 10 years ago at TRX, we did this, this about a two year brand activation where we tricked out this sprinter van, you know, full of TRX gear. We put these goal wings that could fold out off the roof and hang suspension trainers from. And for two years, our master instructors took turns driving this thing around the country doing, you know, delivering black and yellow magic out there in the world. And we supported, you know, our key accounts. Like we had a big club partner that had a new gym opening up. We'd, we'd drive the van out there. And while they, while the gym was under construction, you know, and they were doing their pre-sales, we'd run classes, you know, and show, show people in that area, what kinds of stuff is going to go on inside this gym. We would show up at like, that was back when we were first starting to think about going beyond B2B and starting to go B to C, so we we'd go to the OP Pro or to uh, you know some big festivals and and basically just run classes. Well, now that was ten years ago. That was way before the technology to turn that into a business existed, right? So it it it, it was amazing experience. We did we put like four hundred thousand miles on that van, but eventually, you know, my marketing team was like, hey, boss can we please stop doing this? It takes like eight people to make this magical, you know, mystery tour happen. And, you know, we've done enough of it. So, so I said, yeah, all right, well, let's do something else. But what, what I never forgot about Mike was there is no experience and, and military guys and gals know this, right? Like you go out on a beautiful day outdoors with a bunch of your comrades and you get your sweat on like, and everybody's, everybody's cutting up and joking and the coach is pushing you. And like, there's no workout experience like that. And everybody who's ever been on a sports team, you know, that was out on a football field, you know, doing, doing double days, like no one ever forgets like those outdoor experiences that we all had as athletes in school, right. Even PE class for those who weren't athletes, like those were fun times. Like who, who didn't think PE was like their favorite class when they were in grade school. Right. And, and so, and yet we become adults and all that goes away. Like all of a sudden, maybe you're a lone runner or cyclist out there by yourself, but like for the most part, if you're going to go work out, you're going into a gym and I love gyms. Like I built my whole, you know, first baby TRX in partnership with gyms. Um, But I saw this opportunity from TRX on tour that when we would do these classes outdoors afterward, every trainer would come up and ask me if they could, you know, get a job with us. Like any business person would come up and be like, Hey, are you going to franchise this? And every member would come up and say, Hey, 
I'm going to join the gym that, you know, you're here promoting, but is there a way for me to join this too? And, and we would just laugh and say, nah, man, there's like, this is just a, just a brand activation. But then over the next 10 years, along came Uber. Oh, geolocation. Along came social media. Wow. An effective platform that's low cost to broadcast what you're doing to, to, you know, large numbers of people. And then along came online billing, scheduling, registration, you know, companies like MindBody, which provide most of the, the club management software for studios, all that became commonplace. And I was sitting there going, all right, well, by this point, we had a really, a really banging, thriving group fitness uh, studio in San Francisco called the TRX uh, Training Center. And, you know, I had a choice. Do I want to duplicate that, which was brick and mortar, right? About 1,500 square feet. Well, there's certainly no shortage of brick and mortar fitness franchises in the world. I mean, you can't walk a city block without tripping over three of them. And secondly, like I built my whole business with TR at TRX in partnership with the gyms. So suddenly I'm going to go open up a brick and mortar gym and compete with all my customers. Well, that didn't sound like a great idea, but I had always had this in the back of my mind, like, damn, nobody has, I mean, lots of mom and pops are out there running boot camps right? For 40 years, there've been mom and pop, you know, single site boot camps. Why has nobody ever done a branded roll-up of, of this, this big validated, but unsophisticated space, right? And so I took a look at that and then I looked at, well, all the tech is available now to make this thing efficient. And about the time that I was, that I was, you know, getting serious about, about this and talking to my capital partners about, you know, bringing in somebody to TRX who was better equipped than me to get us to the next level, right? Somebody who's more of a big business manager rather than a startup leader. Um, and guess what came rolling in? Little pesky little virus you may have heard of, right? COVID-19. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's not a sign from the heavens that outdoor fitness business, you know, time has come. I don't know what is. And, and, and those all conspired to launch outfit, which is a outdoor mobile fitness franchise. You guys are going to clean house. Cause I'm up here in the city in Newark and New York city, people loving outdoor stuff. That's why the Peloton stuff is dropping off. People want to get outside. They're ready to get out and about. And so I love that. Like there's that market opportunity there. And then the other thing in me, and I don't know necessarily like the whole market dynamics, but over the last few years, food trucks have been popping up even more so. So yeah. there's this whole, it might be what you said is the technologies there before maybe they didn't have the square stand and all this stuff at scale. But now, you know, business owners are looking and say, hey, do I really need to open up a brick and mortar restaurant? Like you said, you can throw them, <laughs> throw a rock and hit a restaurant versus, hey, a really kind of customized food truck that provides this different experience. And now you're applying that same model to these franchises on outfit. And so, you know, for you coming from being a successful entrepreneur, Bart, you've won, you've made it. Okay. What has been the biggest surprise to you with this new venture? Is there anything you weren't expecting that you had to like, damn, I forgot how hard this was. Anything like that? Yeah. Yeah, man. Every single day, there's something that surprises me. I mean, yeah, I thought I, I thought I knew what I was doing and, and, you know, and at some level I do, but we're doing something new, 
we're doing something that there's not really a paved road to follow. You know, this isn't just, oh, we're going to do what they're doing. Like nobody's doing what we're doing. So there, there's the, the reality that every day you wake up. And I, I think the biggest shocker to me was it's been a long time since TRX was a boot scrape startup, right? Like I got used to having very experienced, very smart, you know, plenty of them helpers. And then you go to this boot scrape startup again, right? Because the one thing I'm not going to do in this business is take private equity. So like that means, okay, I got to raise a little bit of money at a time from angel investors. That takes a hell of a lot of time. I got to put together a team for something that, that like, you know, I mean, nine out of 10 startups fail. The hell you want to go to work for a startup for? Well, okay, but I still have to get a team of people, crazy people that want to go try that, that think that sounds like a kick, right? So you got to find these people. Well, a lot of times they're junior. They don't have a lot of experience, which is why they're so naive to do this thing with you, right? Because they're like, sure, why not? I don't have any skills. Well, that's great in one respect. You can get some helpers, but it's not great in that I spend, you know, I spend as much time as as a, you know, my, my I joke that my job now is like, part professor, part coach, and part janitor, right? Like those are, those are the three things that I spent all my time doing, you know, cleaning up toilets, crappy toilets, and, uh, and, and then trying to coach what I learned at TRX to a, a much younger, less experienced team for the most part. But the thing that does help, I will say a second time, is there are some luxuries, right? Like if you were successful your first time, first people kind of look at you and go, well, all right, he's got a lot of gray, you know, he's got a lot of wrinkles and I know his brand he built first. So I'm going to believe that this guy is a pretty good river guide, right? To run a new rapid with. Number two, you have a network. So now raising money, you know, I had lots of, 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 you know, fairly, fairly successful folks that I could contact and say, Hey, I'm putting together another venture. You know, some of them were my investors from TRX. Um, others were just folks that I know from my career and they, you know, and they've looked and gone, yeah, I'll put money with that cat. And, um, and then you also have in your network colleagues that you've worked with. Right. And so, so I don't want to, I don't want to give, you know, do injustice to the, to some of the senior folks that I have an outfit because what was great about, it was, it was good news, bad news, the pandemic, all the gyms shut and a whole bunch of very talented, very experienced people got kicked out of their jobs, right? The good news for me was it was good hiring environment. So I was able to pull in, you know, some very good seasoned folks uh, that I'd worked with for almost two decades you know, in the industry that we're managing at large scale operations and pull them over to Outfit. And so, so, you know, we don't have a lot of folks at Outfit yet because we don't have a budget for it, but, uh, but the folks we have are all, you know, smart, hardworking and want to kick ass and win. Well, it's a hell of a thing to start a venture, crank out the Google docs, you know, start writing that fiction on paper. Some people call it a business plan. I call it writing a fiction novel and uh, bringing it to life. But kudos to you for jumping back in the saddle. And the cool thing now, even more so, is I just feel like we got just such a strong veteran entrepreneur network these days. And so, uh, you know, I can see so many people uh, coming around you to help make this thing possible just because, you know, you're a legend amongst the veteran entrepreneur community for what you've done with, uh, with TRX. And we appreciate you spending this time with us here today. 
And as we close out, I want, I just got two quick questions for you. You know, on this podcast, we try to leave our listeners with actionable takeaways. So what are three things you recommend early uh, first stage founders trying to kick off their ventures, get it to market, et cetera? What three pieces of advice would you like to leave them with? And the other thing, how can we support you with Outfit? All right. Well, those are two good questions. So, you know, I think for early stage folks, there's a couple of key things. You know, number one, you we've already talked about making sure you're solving a problem. And you really got to like, you really got to spend time on that. Because if you don't, you will pay a heavy, heavy price. You either got to solve a problem or you got to be doing something that's already being done in a way that is fundamentally different and better than the incumbents that are out there doing it, right? Not marginally. Because when you think about what makes someone shift, right, from one service provider to another, they don't do it because you're a little better. It's a pain in the ass, right? Like if somebody tells you, I can save you 10, 10% on your phone bill. Are you changing? Are you really going and changing your phone service for that? No, because the 10% works out to be whatever, 12 bucks a month, right? And you're just, it's too much of a pain in the butt for you to do that. Now, if somebody says, hey, my phone service also delivers unlimited Wi-Fi or my phone service is 50% less than what you're paying. Okay, well now, now you, you've got me interested, right? Fundamentally better not marginally better. So so those are that's kind of that's kind of step 1 as you decide what you want to do. Piece of advice 2. Figure out early on, right, how you you are going to spend your day. And and here's how I recommend doing that because you have to develop a team very quickly. If if you don't develop a team, you are very quickly going to burn yourself into a puddle and you're going to be good at nothing and your business is going to come to a grinding halt. So you have to get a team, but then once you have a few people that are in it with you, you have to decide how am I going to spend my day, right? What things am I going to focus on? And I have a good tool for that. I think I shared it when we were in at the, at that, um, at the seminar at, at the Marine Memorial, because it's helpful to me. I, I have like a little metaphorical lens that I hold up and I look at my to-do list each day. And that lens separates the things that only I can do from the things on that list that someone else on my team can do. And what I do is I pull the things that only I can do out, set them to the side, take the things that are left by definition someone else can do and go give them to those people, right? One by one to the person who should have them. Then I go back to my list and I go, all right, which one of these things is about to burn my feet off? That goes one. Which one's, you know, five feet from the, which, I like to use the, the burning tumbleweed metaphor, right? These tumbleweeds are coming at you and they're burning, they're on fire. Well, you don't have a choice to ignore the one that's about to light you up. You have to deal with it. But then there's one that's five yards away. Then there's one that's 15 yards away. Then there's one that's way out there, hundred yards away. Well, that can wait, right? Because it's got to bounce its way toward me. So first, solve a problem or be fundamentally better than, than what's already there. Second, build your good small team and then make sure that you're focusing your energies on only the things that only you can do and give everything else to every, to everybody else. And third is get freaking profitable as fast as you can. And here's why. Like a lot of startups, in fact, almost all startups start negative. 
Why? Because there's kind of three phases to any startup. First, you got to build it. Then you got to prove it. Then you got to scale it. Phase one, two, and three. Well, the build it phase always involves capital going in before you get anything back. The prove it phase is where you then prove that what you built, people will pay for and you start getting cash, right? And then eventually you get to scale it. It's working and now we can expand, right? But in that, that, that third piece of advice, do not go so deep underwater, right? That, that everything has to work out perfectly for you to get back to the surface level and breathe, right? Because you will die underwater. So like as quickly as possible, start making some money and moderate your expectations. This was the big mistake that I made at TRX that I will not make again, is that I believed in the potential of that business at such a degree of optimism that I thought, well, I can go raise a giant chunk of capital and it'll help us get there way faster. And of course, this business is going to be worth a jillion dollars and I'll be able to pay that capital back no matter how expensive it is, right? That very often does not work that way because gravity starts to hit a business as it grows, right? There's like universal laws in the world and they apply universally. That's why they're called universal laws. Gravity is one of them. Death and taxes is another one, right? And gravity starts to weigh on a business as you start to try to grow it. You start to have, you know, problems with your team. Competition arises. You get knockoffs. You know, you all kinds of crazy ass stuff that you did not envision and that didn't exist when you were operating in obscurity. Nobody wants to knock you off when you're obscure. They want to knock you off once you've proven that you're like you're a player. So all this stuff happens that slows down and derails your best plan. And what you cannot do is put yourself in a position where you are deficit spending on a business for more than just a very short period of time at the beginning of that business. You have to get to profitability as quickly as possible and you need to maintain it. And I don't give a shit what anybody tells you about these nonsense tech unicorns that, you know, burn cash for 20 years and then become, you know, and the whole time they're worth billions of dollars. Those are few and far between. And very often, like we're seeing with Peloton, there's a lot more, you know, sizzle than there is steak and they end up cratering. So for most of us, small business people get profitable as soon as possible and stay profitable and grow at, at a level that allows you to do that. Borrow a little from the bank, invest it wisely, pay it off. Borrow a little more, invest it wisely, pay it off. Do not put yourself under a boulder that now you need a freaking grand slam for everybody to get out with their skin on. Man, this is a masterclass, Randy. I mean, I, the professor speaks and I feel like I asked you some questions I haven't heard on other interviews and I appreciate your open honesty and transparency. But again, how can we support you at this next phase of your entrepreneurial journey? Well, like go follow us on Instagram, right? At Outfit Training underscore HQ because that'll allow everybody. I know you got listeners that are outside of, you know, obviously in South Florida, but number one, it'll, it'll let them, you know, know when we're coming their way. And then the other thing with yours in particular, Mike, and your background, like we're not ready yet. We're going to be ready by about January of 2023 to start selling franchises. Cause I'm a, I'm not a believer. I'm not a build and flip guy. I would never build a prototype and then, and then sell a thousand of them because 
you have no idea whether that business is going to work or not, right? I'm not selling that to somebody else until I'm sure that if you follow, follow the playbook, you're going to score a touchdown, right? And so we're spending the rest of 2022 building that playbook and, and, and learning on our dime, right? Our dime, not on, not on a franchise partner's dime, like what to do and what not to do. At the end of this year, by, by January of next year, we're going to start franchising. And I believe this could be one of the, if not the single best post-service business ownership opportunity for vets that there will ever be. I mean, we, we, because the cost is so low relative to, you know, if you told, if you said to me, Randy, I'm rich and I want to put my son in, in business, I want to prepay for everything. You know, I want to own, own the van outright, the territory, the rights, prepay the first year's, you know, minimum royalties. What would that cost? It costs about 150 grand all in. And about 90 grand of that is financeable by Ford, right? So there are no opportunities in the franchise universe to get into that kind of a business. And what do vets all know? At some level, every vet I know knows PT, right? We all came up in a physical culture. So they come out of the service knowing and loving PT, not a lot of money to throw at a business. And certainly they don't want to, you know, put, if they have, if they've managed to save a bunch, they don't want to put that all at risk. So, you know, getting into a business that has a very low cost of entry, very low operating expenses, and that you can break even quickly doing something you love doing, right, is I think an incredible opportunity for vets. And we're going to, we're going to offer, you know, business ownership opportunities to some other populations that, that often get priced out of the franchise market female entrepreneurs, right? Who have kids. And like, this is a, this is a career where you're building real net worth that if you got to take off a few months to go have kid, it works. You hire another trainer to replace you during that time frame. You go have your kid. And when you're ready, you come back and pick back up where you left off, right? Minority entre- business owners, like a lot of that population may not be able to afford to go throw a million, I mean, shit, any, any population, you know, <laughs> unless you're already rich, Putting a million bucks into to an Orange Theory franchise, I certainly didn't have that, right? But but we're at Outfit. We're I think we're going to really be able to democratize business ownership in the fitness landscape, and and I'm really excited about the ability to to do that. So your listeners, you know, if if, if you fall in any of those categories, keep your eyes peeled. You know, watch what we're doing, and by by January, like if you if you're at all interested. We have a, on our website, we have a, we're not ready yet, but if you'd like to be contacted when we are, leave us your info. You know, we obviously would never sell anybody's info to anybody. It's just so we reach back out when we're ready and say, Hey, we got an interest form from you. Are you still interested to talk about a franchise opportunity? Right. And, um, and that's, that's the best way that, that I think uh, any of your listeners could help me is just keep, stay tuned on, on outfit and, uh, and, and who knows, maybe a year from now, you know, we'll be ready to do business together. Man, I look forward to it. Randy's looking in shape, y'all. He's still getting after it. He looks like he's about to go on a run. As soon as he jumps off the podcast, I'm headed to Ironbound Boxing, uh, my boxing academy here in Newark, and I'm going to get some work in myself. But this has been great. Shout out to Randy and the team at Outfit and TRX for all the amazing work they're doing. For all our listeners, make sure you subscribe to the Dog Whistle Brandon newsletter at the link in the show notes. And Randy, one thing I would love to do is I've been 
stepping up my writing ability and we've got this great newsletter. I would love to do our own dog whistle branding case study on TRX because you've done some amazing stuff with it from how you train people to use the product, which I think is one of the best marketing strategies there is, is educate your users how to win with your product. And I would love to highlight that feature it in a newsletter and uh, send it to you to uh, give me the Anytime thumbs up. Anytime you want to do it, Mike. I'm, I'm all about it. I love what you're doing. I love the hustle. I love dog whistle. I think that, as I told you, I think that's one of the coolest names I've ever heard for a branding uh, agency. And uh, yeah, man, anything I can do to, to support you, I'm all about it. So let me know when you want to write that piece and I'll, uh, I've spent a few more years than you writing so I can even edit some of your poor grammar, I'm sure, at this point. It ought to be yeah, I'm all, a, those years, I'm all those years of writing should be worth something. Yeah, I'm a Marine. I'm a Marine Corps grunt and a boxer, so you know I'm a little punchy. Grammar ain't my best, but I'll be sure to send that over to you. Until next week, everyone. Peace, love, and keep getting after it. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy for veteran owned businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, IronboundMedia.com. This series is powered by the Lions Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. 